0: Well, hey there, New Hope Eugene. Welcome. So great to have you. We are in week five of our series, Our Living Hope. to study of this ancient letter called First Peter. And in the room, you can't see them, uh, but we have some of our awesome, incredible, hardworking New Hope Eugene staff. And there is a bit of back and forth. There's a bit of response in this message today. And so they're going to They're gonna help us out. Our big idea for the series, just by way of reminder, is this, in Jesus, we have a living hope that rewrites and redefines our identity by rewriting and redefining our past, present, and future. Uh, First Peter, again, by way of reminder, is known as a Catholic letter or that word, it's, it's a general letter as opposed to something more specific that was written maybe to a church or a specific individual. Um, it was uh, adopted early into the Bible, into the canon, because of its winsome way. Uh, it's full of encouragement. It's known as the lovely letter. And uh, so Peter sits down and he writes this letter to a people who are living in some chaotic times. They, they're struggling, they're frustrated, they're being persecuted, some are dying. Uh, they're, they're on the run. And uh, some are at risk of turning their backs on Jesus and going back to their old lifestyle. And Peter sits down to write them this encouraging letter. And I want us to, as we read the text today, we're actually going to finish chapter two. So it's a big bite of the apple. As we read the text today, I want us to think about maybe bridge the gap between 2,000 years ago and our current context today, and not just the last three or four months, but maybe the last... Two or three days, the last 24 to 48 hours, what we're walking through as a church, as a state, and as a nation. We could say it this way. This is a people who were once not a people, became a people in Jesus, and now are struggling with their identity in Jesus. We, we, we could say it this way. They were once a rejected people. They became accepted in Christ, and now are being rejected again by society around them because of their faith. Another way, these were once a people without an identity. They established an identity in Jesus, received an identity in Jesus, and now are having that identity tested through the fires of persecution. So 1 Peter was not written, again, to uh, fight some theological heresy. It was written to encourage Christ followers who were struggling. So the title of my message today is You Are, I Am. And I wanna point out something in chapter two that uh, maybe you've not recognized before as you've read 1 Peter. It was something that I had not recognized until I really dove in and began to study. And it's this, that there's this beautiful, unique back and forth, this reciprocity or kind of this cause and effect. Uh, almost a liturgy, if you will, that we find in chapter two. It really becomes a theological feast. Uh, And and so it it sounds like this, because he is, then you are, or you you are that you may, or because Jesus, then this in your life. Let Let me point a few out to you right up here on the screen, verse five, you also, speaking of, so we're coming out of verse four, remember we we studied verses one through four last week. So um, this is in response, Uh, Peter says, you also, this is in response to Jesus being uh, rejected by men, accepted by God, he comes along, he says, listen, you're accepted by God and you're rejected by your society, so you also, verse seven, therefore to you who believe, He is, look at verse nine, but you are that you may. Verse 10, who once were, but now, but are now. Verse 10 again, who had not, but now have. Verse 21, for to this you were called that you should. Verse 24, who himself bore that we. Verse 25, for you were, but have now. So we left off with verse four last week. It sounded like this coming to Jesus as to a living stone, and he begins verse five, continuing the thought, you also. Underline it, highlight it, you also. As living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in scripture and he borrows from the Old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone elect Precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Peter begins our text. He says, You also, you what? Jesus, again, Jesus was rejected by men and women, but he was accepted by God, and so you also, this is your life as well. You're going through the fires of persecution, it's chaotic, it's tough, but you're not alone. I don't know uh, if you're like me, but when I'm going through a difficult time, sometimes it helps me for a friend, a pastor, a mentor to come along and just say, listen, I don't have the answers, but here's what I do know. You're not alone. C.S. Lewis, again, I think a quote, a concept that we've hit on a few times here at New Hope Eugene. Uh, C.S. Lewis would say that friendship is born at the moment that one person says to another person, you too? You know, I thought I was the only one going through X. And he goes on, he says, as living stones, you're being built up a spiritual house. Jesus is the living stone, but we too are are maybe a chip off the old block. We're living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Peter borrows this imagery from uh, the Old Testament. He borrows this imagery from from Jesus' mouth in the Old Testament, Isaiah 28. Psalm 118, but Jesus himself in Matthew 21, he is telling a story, a parable. He's making up a story to make a point. And Jesus says this, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. If I could take you to Jerusalem, uh, to the temple complex in, in the, the, the southeast corner, there is uh, the, the chief cornerstone. It measures 39 feet, four inches long, It's seven feet, 10 inches wide and and 43 inches, nearly four feet tall. Estimates of 80 tons. But that's not the biggest cornerstone. If we were to go down just a little further to the master course of stones, a guide could show us uh, a stone that's 41 feet long, 15 feet wide and 11 and a half feet tall. There's some estimates that that stone weighs nearly 600 tons. So in ancient times, uh, in Peter's time, builders would not pour foundations or slabs like we, like we pour today. They, they would build their foundations out of these incredible hewn stone and, and they would put the largest stone, the most precise stone, they would set it in this place of honor as the chief cornerstone and that would create the symmetry and the angle and the, and the quality of the building. Peter draws on this imagery and he says, listen, we are, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's the the living stone and we're being built up a spiritual house. What's the point? Well, there, there are multiple, but the first is this. We're better together, New Hope Eugene. You are crucial to the body of Christ. This is why we would encourage you to attach, don't just attend. There's something that happens when we show up and we attach rather than just 10 There are no lone rangers in the body of Christ. I've, throughout you know, my, my pastorate, I've heard people say often to me, well, Brandon, I don't know that I need church. You know, the, the river is my church or the garden is my sanctuary. And, and I understand it. You're, you're, you're talking to a, you know, a mild introvert. I understand being away from people. But often my response is this, that one brick doesn't make the house whole. When we stand alone, it flies in the face of what Peter is saying. We are living stones being built up together, a spiritual house. I don't want us to miss also another point that Peter's trying to make and it's this, we no longer go to a temple, we are the temple. And he's he's about ready to say, no longer do we go see a priest, we are a royal priesthood in Christ. He goes on, he says, therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the, here it is again, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. He goes on in verses nine and 10, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. I want you to think about this, a scattered persecuted church receiving this reminder of their identity in Christ. Listen listen to this again, but you are a chosen generation. He reminds them who they are, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who once had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I want you to say this with me. Would you repeat this after uh, with me uh, on the count of three? You are that you may. Here we go. One, two, three. You are that you may. Peter reminds them who they are, and he gives them the why behind the what. I I wonder if you've ever wondered this. I I am, now what? I'm I'm married, now what? I'm licensed, now what? I've graduated, now what do I do? I'm single, now what? what? What is the next step? What is the why behind this station in my life? And he says that you are that you may that you may do what? Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I think what Peter does here is he answers what the spiritual sacrifices that he was talking about back up in verse five. Our proclaiming the praises of him who called us out of darkness is the spiritual sacrifice that we make. Or maybe we would say this theologically, it's one of the chief spiritual sacrifices that we would make, that idea of sacrifice. Again, Peter pulls from the Old Testament often, this imagery from the Old Testament in this letter. And this idea of a sacrifice would be one that his Jewish brothers and sisters would know, even even Gentile followers coming out of, um, kind of disembarking from a a Roman culture, they had a sacrificial system as well. That idea of sacrifice is the act of giving something up that, that we would rather keep, Uh, in order to get something or do something to help someone else. It's an act of killing an animal. In some cultures, even a human being, may be surrounding a religious ceremony, it's an offering to please a god or the gods. It's a person or an animal that is killed in a sacrifice. Brandon, what's the point? The point is the very nature of the word sacrifice is that we give something up in order to gain something this idea of sacrifice Joy and I went you know whenever the olympics roll around we tune in as much as we can and and um the most recent olympics Joy and I were watching uh the gymnastics portion of of the telecast and there there was a a, a, a this gymnast representing, uh, the country of China and, and the, and the announcer, the TV announcer said this, and I I wrote it down. I actually rewound. And I wrote this down. They said this, this young lady's family has leveraged their entire livelihood to help her get to the Olympics. And she is hoping to be able to redeem their sacrifice. And, And my stomach tightened up for this, this young teenage girl. I thought, man, there, there's no pressure in that. And she she was on the uneven bars. And in a transition, I found myself rooting for her. And in this transition from from the lower bar to to the upper bar, she slipped and she fell. And that sacrifice wouldn't be redeemed. In the Old Testament, God's people would offer an animal sacrifice that cost them something in order to gain forgiveness or, or, or favor with God or a covering for their sin. When we fast forward to the New Testament, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this. Listen, the, the, the second Adam came along. His name's Jesus, and he was a sacrifice once and for all. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, he goes through great lengths to remind the churches in Galatia that the gospel is a matter of what has been done. It's not a matter of do. It's not what we can do to engender more favor or more love from God. The gospel is something that has already been done. So what is our New Testament sacrifice? I think Peter alludes to it here. He he would say it's the proclamation of what's already been done. So our sacrifice is no longer doing for God. It's a proclamation of what he has done. He's plucked us from darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. He goes on. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Here's those words again that we talked about in weeks one and two. We're just passing through. This is not our home. Think about these these Christ followers who are who have been scattered. They're not in their homeland, they're in foreign territory but they're looking heavenward. He says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. I love what Peter does here. There's a balance. We just talked about the proclamation of the gospel and then Peter moves us to our actions, the way that we act as Christ followers. It's both words and then action to back it up. There's a famous saying that usually is ascribed to St. Francis of Assisi, even though I'm not sure he's the one who said it, uh, but it goes like this, uh, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And and I love that quote. I've, I've used it often myself, but it seems to do damage to the idea of actually proclaiming what God has done, proclaiming the gospel, and so I'd love to rework it. Maybe, maybe we could say it this way, preach the gospel, and since it's necessary, also use words. It's this tandem, it's this, it's this incredibly effective tandem of our words and our actions, and so if you've ever been in the place, wondering at a loss for words, for instance, uh, and you've wondered if your actions could actually point someone to Jesus. Just commit verses 11 and 12 to memory. Peter uses these words, sojourners and pilgrims. It's reminiscent of the children of Israel, maybe wandering around, being being exiles and and uh, slaves in Egypt, and Egypt, and wandering around homeless, essentially, in the desert, looking for their homeland. This has the language and the imagery uh, in the section of ambassadors. You are ambassadors, he would tell them, of a different king and a greater kingdom. And how you speak and how you act matters. I thought about ambassadors of the United States, and I tried to think of one maybe that we would recognize, and I pulled a picture here of Carolyn Kennedy. She was our ambassador to Japan. She represented Japan from 2013 to 2017. We could also make the case a few years ago that we sent 553 athletic ambassadors to Rio for the Olympics in 1992, as I was getting ready to graduate, the Dream Team was a big deal. Uh, they were traveling and, and there there was this game, some of you remember this game against um, Angola. And uh, the US was in the middle of a 46 to one run on the basketball court. If you don't know basketball, th- th- that's, a cr- that's a crushing. And uh, amidst a 46 to one run, Charles Barkley got upset at one of the Angola players and he elbowed them and and it looked like he knocked the wind out of him. And I thought, even as a high schooler then, I thought, no, there was a, uh, again, my, my stomach just started to churn because he was representing me as a US citizen, an ambassador of sorts. Peter goes on, verse 13, he picks up, he says, therefore, use that word therefore. In other words, because of this, because we're ambassadors, Because this is not our homeland, we're we're spiritual sojourners, we're spiritual exiles, and we represent our king. He says, therefore, because of this, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king, he says we're exiles of heaven, yet we live here on earth. You've heard that phrase before. It's kind of this this, uh, poignant axiom that that we have to be in the world, but but not of the world. The problem is, who's likely the emperor at the time of Peter's writing here this letter? It's, It's probably Nero. And Nero was a Nero was a madman, he was known for killing Christians. And so as as someone reading this 2000 years ago, honor the king, you know, the emperor, the Caesar, why would you encourage me to honor a madman? As we read the New Testament letters, just a little bit of background, a little bit of context, it's really important to know that, that many times there's some political undertones in the New Testament I believe. And I think we see it here with Peter. And so, and so in Rome, the the Caesars were really known as gods. They, they were, they were like miniature gods appointed by the gods. And we worshiped no one in the Roman empire except Caesar. And, and then along comes kind of this backwoods movement. These people called the way or Christ followers. And they, they followed this, this Jewish carpenter named Jesus. And it, and it sounds like they're giving their allegiance to him. This sounds a little bit like a coup. This sounds a little bit like an insurrection. And so these, these very critical eyes from the Roman elite fell on the Christ followers. And so as our New Testament writers wrote, they understood that these letters would get out and and they could fall into the hands of some of the Roman leadership. And they wanted them to know unequivocally that we're not here to overthrow the government. We're here for you. Our allegiance is to Jesus, but we're not here as part of some insurrection. So if you read Luke, for instance, he's writing to uh, Theophilus in, in, in Luke Acts especially in Acts, when he goes through the trials of the Apostle Paul, he goes into great lengths to let his reader know, and, and by default his readers, the world know, that Paul was never convicted of insurrection. It wasn't Paul's goal to overthrow a government. It was Paul's goal to live his life according to his convictions and his love for Jesus. So we're not against you we're with you. Yes, we worship Jesus. We're going to bow our knee to Jesus, not to Caesar. But, but the, the, this, this got mixed up. And our, and our New Testament writers wanted their hearers, their readers to know that they're not here to overthrow a government. He goes on. He says servants or slaves, some translations say. Slaves, servants, be submissive to your masters. This word in the original language is despotoy, it would be where we would get our English word despot, with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. He goes on, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now, friends, I want to address this I, this idea of slaves and masters, servants and masters. But before we go that, I want you to notice a word. He says, Christ has set an example. This, this word in the Greek is hupogramas. It's, it's a unique word in the New Testament. It would be the imagery here is when you were in grade school, maybe first grade or second grade, and you were learning to write your letters and you had these dotted lines that you would follow, this pattern that you would follow or shapes. You're learning to, you know, draw your shapes and you'd have some dotted lines and you would fill them in. This is this. This is a pattern. This is the hupo Gramas, and, and, and Peter would say, Jesus has set an example of sacrifice and servanthood for us to follow. Now, friends, we're, we're kind of preaching through the book of 1 Peter. And so we come to this idea of slaves and masters. And uh, we're, we're left with a couple of choices. We can skip it all together because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to acknowledge it. We could try to just immediately bridge the gap into 21st century and say, "Hey, since uh, you know slavery's been abolished, uh, we're not going to deal with the historical context and what Peter seems to be saying here." Um, or we could we could just, as many pastors and preachers do, we could just turn this into kind of a you know uh, 21st century. This is you know employer-employee context, and let's just learn from it that way. But here's the deal: when, when I hear that, in fact, I heard I listened to a pastor preach it that way again this week, and I just wanted to raise my hand and go, "Yeah, but." Peter is talking about slavery. There's this idea of slavery in the Bible and he seems to not condemn it. Rather, he's telling slaves to be obedient to the mess. So what is this all about? We wanna wade right in. So a couple of um, two really major words, key words for for slavery in the New Testament. And Peter uses one that would describe maybe um, kind of a domestic or a household slave. And so in, in the Roman empire, you know 2000 years ago at the time that peter's writing this there were upwards of probably some estimates 10 million slaves just in rome alone if you look at the roman empire upwards estimates upwards of 60 million slaves nearly nearly half of the roman empire and so they would conquer a territory they would conquer a people and they they would become slaves and it really did not have anything far less to do with race. It just had to do with we've, we've taken over, we're the kingpin, and so whether you were homeless or a, a common worker or you were a doctor or a lawyer, all of you are slaves and you're going to do the work of the Roman Empire. And then along comes Christianity, and guess what happens? Slaves and masters both begin to turn their lives over to Jesus. In fact, friends, I don't know if you know this or not, but it would not have been uncommon for a slave first to come to faith in Christ and begin to lead a house church in which their master was subject to their teaching at least that one day a week. And this idea that humanity is created equal. And so you might ask, well, then why doesn't Peter tell these slaves to rise up and revolt? I think part of the challenge is Peter knew that they had had tried and some of you had studied this. this this comes in the form of the first second and third servile wars where um, slaves would 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 rise up and revolt and they were met with swift and brutal and immediate punishment probably the most famous was the third servile war led by none other than Spartacus in 71 BC. And and again, some of you have studied this. And so these slaves rose up and they began to, you know, kind of throw off the shackles of slavery and they roamed around the land and they gathered about a hundred thousand men, women, and children. Not all of them could fight. The problem was Rome took note of this and they were met with eight legions of Roman troops. They were slaughtered. Six thousand of them survived And those 6,000, Rome made an example of, and they hung them, they hung their bodies, they lined the streets with their bodies. So you would be walking down a street in Rome and you would see body after body after body of these slaves, a clear message to, to slaves that slavery will never be abolished in the Roman Empire. But Peter also knew something else, friends that the leaven of the gospel, the leaven of the gospel would work its way through the society, that, that the gospel is powerful enough to change culture. The gospel is powerful enough to change hearts, to change cities, to change nations. And by the third century, there was a Caesar that ascended to the throne and he declared his allegiance to Jesus Christ. By the fourth century in Rome, roughly slavery was abolished in Rome, we move to the 18th and 19th century, the abolitionist movement, all led by Christians. Friends, we live in a microwave culture and there are some things in the kingdom of God that, that are immediate, kind of the suddenly factor in the Bible. And then there are other things that, 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 that take time. There are other things that we, we have to trust the leaven of the gospel to change. Jesus said this in Matthew 13, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So Pastor Brandon, did, did Peter get it wrong? Does the Bible get it wrong? Does the Bible condone slavery? No, I don't think so. In fact, here's, here's what I know. I don't have all the answers, friends. I don't have all the answers. But here's what I do know. There were precious lives who were reading Paul's or Peter's letter who were spared, and they continued to lead others to Christ, more and more people, until the leaven of the gospel worked its way through, like, like, like yeast through the dough, throughout the entire Roman culture, and slaves were freed. I want to end this way today. Uh, in, in this encouraging place today, Peter goes on, he says, for you were like sheep going astray. Um... The more I study sheep, I think the more I'm insulted by this idea of uh, Christ followers being likened throughout scripture to sheep. Uh, There's some things that we know about them, like they they like to gather in a herd for protection. It's probably good. Uh, uh, A herd of sheep will generally stray away from the shepherd to follow other sheep. It's interesting. Uh, In fact, they'll just follow one another. They've been known to follow one another to their death. And so one you know, just walks right off a cliff. The other one will follow the other one right off a cliff. If they're frightened, they'll run away from you. And about your only hope is to make sure that you have kind of a herd dog that will turn them back to you. Um, uh, They're basically directionless. You can put them in a really familiar spot and a sheep will find a way to get lost. And Peter pulls from the prophet Isaiah and he says this, for you were like sheep, you were directionless You didn't know where to go, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That word overseer, we've rendered it in the English bishop. I don't know that I love this word. This is a really full, powerful word. It's the imagery of of a warrior. It's someone who would fight for justice. It's someone who would protect and and would bring safety. It's a defender. It's a counselor, a helper, and a guide. When, when, When Peter used this word, to these people who were struggling, persecuted, fighting for their faith. He says, listen, you you have a warrior fighting for you. You have a counselor, you have an overseer of your soul. When your mind is on edge, you have an overseer. When you're ready to quit, when you're fragile, when it's chaotic, when you're fatigued, you have an overseer and a protector shepherd of your soul. So Noop, Eugene, what I want to do is, because there's this beautiful cause and effect, kind of this beautiful back and forth in liturgy that we read in chapter two, I want to do the same thing. I want to end with the liturgy. We're really not a liturgical church, but Um, a bit of a response time. So I'm gonna read a phrase and I've invited my friend Gordon to come on up and and he's gonna lead your portion. And so I'll say a portion and then you'll respond wherever you're at, maybe at home, kitchen counter, on the couch, in the bedroom, in your car. I want you to respond with Gordon. So let me me just give you an example. I I, I would say, uh, for instance, I'm chosen by God and you, you would respond that I might proclaim his Let me give you one more example. I once had not obtained mercy in your response, but now I have obtained mercy. Friends, I want you to think about what's going on in your life. Maybe the frustration, the chaos, the persecution, sickness, loss, and I want you to own this for your own life. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm chosen by God that I might proclaim his praises. I once had not obtained mercy, but now I've obtained mercy. I once was not part of a people, but now have joined God's people. Jesus, to others, you're rejected. But to me, you're precious. Though I'm directionless, I have returned to the overseer of my way. Though my emotions are fragile, Jesus, you're the overseer of my soul. Though my will is weak, Jesus, you're the overseer of my soul. Though I can't see justice. Jesus, I trust you to set things right. When I'm confused. Jesus, as my overseer, you grant me wisdom. I return to you again today. Jesus, the overseer of my soul. Friends, I want you to hear it one more time, verses nine and 10 as we close down and I pray for you. But you are You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, New Hope Eugene, a holy nation, His own special people. This is your identity, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your redemption in our lives. Lord, we love you, we give you praise. We use this time of chaos, we use this time of upheaval, we use this time of questioning, We use this time of kind of being in a, in a, in a, in a liminal, kind of in-between kind of in uh, foot in, in two or three different worlds space to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim what has been done, that we have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light. And we ask you for help. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We hope you gene. We love you. Uh, We're praying for you. Bless you. We'll see you next week.